0: Chris Hudala, welcome to Hemp Barons today. Thank you. We're awfully lucky to have you. You are really a first line of defense and just a a personal hero of mine in terms of leading the hemp and cannabis industries for standards, for ethics, all of the things that you see as the CEO and founder of Proverde Laboratories. Tell us about what brought you first to the cannabis space from the world of academia, from whence you came.
1: Well, when they first legalized uh, marijuana, medical marijuana in Massachusetts, um, we realized that there was a significant need for some sort of analytical testing. Uh, If you think about anything that we put in or on our body, whether it's toothpaste or topical lotions or foods, they're they're tested to some level. Uh, And it seemed uh, ironic to me that there would be a medical-based product that had no level of testing at all. And so uh, we lobbied our our state uh, Department of Public Health to uh, get testing included as part of the program, and we were successful in doing that. And and Massachusetts then became uh, one of the first states to uh, regulate testing and to mandate it as part of a medical marijuana testing program. Most states that have come online since that, both with adult use and medical, have included some level of testing uh, as part of those requirements.
0: And indeed, for the New York uh, cannabinoid hemp regulations, which are of course are in a proposed state right now, um, thank you so much for allowing us to consult with you as, as stakeholders and grassroots activists, and we uh, very much advocated, and we'll see when the revised proposed regs come out and start the second comment period, uh, how close we were to getting New York to duplicate uh, the Massachusetts testing guidelines, which was absolutely um, included in the comments. Let me ask you this too, a related but side note. I often tell folks that ProVerde has the largest database of uh, soil samples and and heavy metals in in soils data uh, that's been collected thus far. Still a true statement? It was true a a couple of years ago.
1: I don't know anymore. Uh, Heavy metal testing has kind of become, as I think we were probably among the first labs that were providing uh, high level elemental analysis using ICPMS for uh, reporting elements, but now it's pretty standard. And so I don't know if that's true anymore. Uh, most labs uh, are doing some level of that testing that has become a part of the framework of most state required testing. Um, and so I have no idea if that's true anymore.
0: It's a cornucopia out there. It's a revolution. We've got asteroids hitting meteors, and oh my goodness. Uh, so let's get right to it. I wanted to lay a foundation here, obviously, um, but I really want us to focus on some consumer awareness uh, concerns, public health concerns, emerging industry concerns uh, as it relates to Delta 8, and uh, maybe even if we can touch upon it Um the delta 9 thc acetate but certainly we're uh seeing a lot in the news about delta 8 and just today in fact high times uh sent a sponsored email to talk about uh replace this picture of a joint with this uh two pictures of a tablets which were delta eight uh so it's it's coming up more and more Let's talk a bit from the perspective of the hemp revolution and the fact that gloriously, of course, the U.S. Congress in 2018 passed the Farm Bill, which removed hemp and all of its parts Extracts, derivatives, compounds, cannabinoids, and as you have so uh, astutely pointed out, isomers and salts of isomers. Um, remove them all from the Controlled Substances Act. Everything is an legal agricultural commodity now, and we've got these thirty isomers of tetrahydrocannabinol for the for the audience. We, of course, have just been saying THC for all these years, and everyone kind of knew what we were talking about. We were talking about Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, the intoxicating or most talked about intoxicating uh, cannabinoid in the hemp plant. But the reality is, and as is defined in the Controlled Substances Act, there are multiple tetrahydrocannabinols with an S, 30 isomers of THC. And we're starting to see Delta 8. I won't say derived from the hemp plant, and we're going to let Chris dis- de- elaborate on why. I'm not going to say that, but converted from cannabinoids in a hemp plant, starting to enter the market, and folks discussing an intoxicating effect from them. Of course, hemp was not legalized for intoxication. That's what the medical and adult use market is for. Take it from there, Chris. Let's let's hear about um, you being a first line of defense for for really informing folks about c- your concerns regarding.
1: Delta-8. Sure. When when you look at the language of legislation or regulation or the farm bill, um, oftentimes we don't know what we don't know. And so at the time that those uh, documents or, or legislation were created, we didn't really know where the future was going to bring us. And so I have to think that when they crafted that language, when they talked about isomers, I have to think that they were talking about naturally occurring isomers of THC, uh, Delta 9, uh, Delta 8 THC has been observed at trace levels in some some plant material. And so they wanted to permit that Delta 8 is being part of that. And so that's where the isomer language came in for. What I don't believe they meant is synthetic isomers of unknown toxicity or efficacy. So Um, back when they were writing these documents, the people who were charged with writing the regulations and legislation didn't have much knowledge of Delta-10 THC or Delta-6A-10A THC. Um, And so they weren't really thinking about that. When you think of these isomers, they are not naturally occurring. So of the 30 isomers of THC, The plant produces primarily a single delta 9 there's actually four different delta 9 thc isomers so there's four of them but the plant only produces one so of these 30 isomers delta 9thc is the only one that's produced in any significant quantity delta 8 is seen in trace levels in some uh, plant material and that's even theorized to not being produced by the plant but rather uh, due to degradation of the Delta 9 THC that the plant produced. But so let's let's assume that that Delta 8 is a natural product. It's the product of natural processes that happen in the environment during cultivation. The other 28 isomers are not natural to cannabis. They're not part of natural processes. So when we see people converting CBD or even Delta 9 THC into Delta 8, they are non directed syntheses. They oftentimes use acids, uh, metal catalysts, uh, normal organic solvents, things that you would see in a pharmaceutical synthetic lab. Uh, and so these are being created synthetically. And because they are non directed, they're non specific, you can't just take CBD and convert it into delta 8. You convert it into lots of the v- THC isomers, and you get a whole mixture of these isomers in these Delta-8 products. Again, the most important thing is that 28 of these isomers have not been studied to any extent, nothing that I can find, on efficacy and, more importantly, toxicity. And so we are dosing a population unknowingly. They think it's derived from the plant. These Delta-8 products are derived from hemp the same way that methamphetamine is derived from cold medicine. You can buy cold medicine over the counter and you can convert it to methamphetamine and uh, it doesn't make it legal. Uh, So in that sense, it is derived from cold medicine. Uh, Delta-8 is derived from CBD uh, from the hemp plant. And so some people say, well, it's just a derivative. It's still an unnatural product.
0: And uh, thank you so much for, for all of that. And here's the interesting debate that I find myself getting into, um, with folks spirited and otherwise on this is, is the real true definition of synthetic and how the Drug Enforcement Administration deals with synthetic, how the Food and Drug Administration deals with synthetic. And more to the point is this debate where folks are telling me, listen, this is not a chemically synthesized product, this this uh, process. This is the type of, of hair splitting in the conversations and debates that I'm having where folks are saying, it's a passive process. If we're not creating these things entirely from chemicals in, in a Petri dish, the way, let's say, K2 or spice type of synthetic cannabinoid is created, rather, it's more of a passive process where exactly as you say, we're taking CBD, adding an acid to it to acidify the, the CBD, essentially distill it for a few days, and then filter it over clay and carbon as a passive process, the acidification takes place, not the same thing as adding a chemical constituent onto a molecule, which would be chemical synthesis. By the way, I'm not so sure that e- either way this falls, it it splits the hair that makes any point when we're still talking about a public health concern in human toxicity studies but so that i could either win or somehow take more control in those debates what is that hair splitting conversation that i'm getting into i'm the law and policy girl you're the chemist um how can i say actually it is chemically synthesized the debate is no it's passive not chemical synthesis
1: is it or isn't it so Put a drop of concentrated sulfuric acid in your eye and tell me how passive <laughs> it is. Amen.
0: <laughs> if it's as easy as that, that I can remember. Okay. It's, it's as easy
1: as that. It's a, it's a concentrated sulfuric acid, concentrated nitric acid, these, these acids that they're using to the conversion. And plus, nobody's testing for residuals of these processing solvents or components for finished products. Um, but it is not passive. Passive, passive to me means... If you allow it to go the natural processes, it will get there. These isomers that are created during these processes have not been observed in nature. They're they're not naturally occurring. They have no choice then to be anything but synthetic. They were created by man, by man's intervention or interaction with these. Just because you use CBD as a starting material doesn't make the resulting Delta-8 a natural product.
0: That's the story that I'm sticking to. And I, and I don't even mean to diminish it by saying story. That's the science and, uh, that I'm sticking to in this because we cannot go from hysterical prohibition to responsibly stewarding these emerging industries if we are immediately going to start a, creating... Intoxicating products from a plant uh, that is meant to be to serve a wide spectrum of industries, none of which are to create intoxication, and and the other end of that, and there are lots of reasons why, but the other end of that too, Chris, as you well know, is. You know, for all of these decades during prohibition, hemp and all other forms of cannabis, adult medical use, uh, sacramental, you know, we're all fighting the same fight. But as soon as legalization and regulation starts in, all of the sudden, it's a fascinating evolution where there seems to be some overlapping interests. And the last thing that we want is to create anything other than coalition building with the interest for the legal adult use and and medical market. And for hemp to basically have access to the entire universe right now, and by the way that is not to not acknowledge the fact that we are waiting for the fda to create a regulatory framework for cbd as dietary supplements and food obviously but let's just be real compared on a federal level comparing the hemp industries and all that we have access to now versus the the medical and adult use which on a federal level has none none of these rights um we're not only encroaching on the interests of those markets, but we, we, are, we are also jeopardizing our own, which is we want to prove to lawmakers, regulators, law enforcement, citizens of concern who are trying to dig their way out of all of these decades of hysterical prohibition that hemp doesn't get you high. And yet here we're seeing people experiencing intoxicating effects from these uh, synthesized Delta-8 products. What do you say about that?
1: Well, yeah, it, it's a it's a challenging uh, topic. I mean, I'm not I'm not technically opposed to delta eight. Delta eight has been shown to have great efficacy. There's been a significant amount of research. I think I saw a paper uh, from uh, Raphael Mishulam from back in the '60s uh, already looking at and studying uh, it for efficacy. The problem I have, and, and this is the problem I have with lawyers, as we get into this discussion about delta eight, whether it's legal or not, my position is not. That the delta eight it's illegal or legal it's that these other components that are often resulting in the the processes that are being given to consumers we are dosing them with unknowns and to me there has to be a certain amount of liability um, associated with that and i think that's going to be damaging to the industry
0: Absolutely, and uh, to say uh, that I don't support Delta Eight would would uh, not be correct at all. And in fact, I I was looking at the amount of research that there is out there in our own National Institutes of Health, which include, of course, Dr. Mushulam's uh, research and others. A tremendous um, benefits. The issue is um, what is the what is its intended purpose for consumption? And if the intended purpose for consumption are those wellness or, or health benefits, wonderful. Um, if the intended purpose for consumption is intoxication, as a industry leader stewarding the hemp industries for going on, actually it was 30 years last month. Um, you know, I that's not where I, I'm not happy to see that. I'm not happy to see folks getting intoxicated on on hemp products. So I think it, it's going to be an interesting um, unfolding here. Yep of how this is going to go. Any predictions?
1: Well, so let let me just back up. I'm not against intoxication in in any way. Um, uh, Again, my my concern is for safety. Um, I think when um, consumers are being led to believe that this is naturally extracted from the plant, they're being told and sold a product that is a natural extract of the plant, and it couldn't be further from the truth. I think when FDA, DEA, become increasingly aware. And it it amazes me that they haven't done anything yet because these products are um, all over the marketplace. There is a legitimate pathway for synthesis and production of Delta-8 products. I just haven't seen it come through our lab. We've tested uh, close to 2,000 samples. And in 2,000 samples, I have not seen one yet that I would consider a a Delta-8 that would be appropriate for for dosing humans and um i think when the fda da somebody's going to step in when they see the the bulk or the wealth of the the data that's out there in the terms of the market size and how many consumers um, are being dosed with these unknown products i, I have to think that they're going to step in and, and uh, put the kibosh on it and I, I hate to see that happen it's just that the industry is is moving too fast for its own good and it, it's um, producing products that haven't been researched they haven't been well developed these things are being produced in people's garages sometimes um, and that uh, they're just not safe and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna ruin it for the people who are trying to do it the right way who are taking the appropriate protocols in synthesis and production
0: indeed and and potentially, you know, begin as I say to jeopardize the markets that are absolutely in the bailiwick of hemp, and and I think it's wonderful uh, that you make your position so clear. Hopefully, my listeners know that I am the last person opposed to intoxication. I consume uh, adult use and medical cannabis daily, and have since I'm 18 years old. Um, and I think that that's what those markets, uh, you know, for your for your medical needs and for your uh, either relaxation, spiritual, or escape needs. Um, those are the markets for that. Again, my opinion as, as a decades-long hemp industry leader is I don't want to see people getting intoxicated from anything related to the hemp plant. That isn't what hemp is for. Feel free to avail yourself of the medical adult use and sacramental markets. And if it's not legal where you are, work real hard to make it legal or move to a state where it's legal. Those are your choices. That's kind of you know, uh, where I am about it. Now, I don't want us to move in. Into, I guess, what I would call fear mongering, because, of course, there are isomers out there uh, for any number of of chemicals and and plants and substances, where a disaster is not going to happen um, once it moves into the body. Obviously, you're you're a, a chemist, a PhD who can study uh, how these these chemicals look from a lab perspective, and then there are those who are researched and and trained in how these chemicals react and behave once they're inside a body. Um, but in your presentations, which are fantastic. You use uh, the example of the thalidomide tragedy of the 1950s, just, to, just as a cautionary tale, sort of a, I would say, almost an extreme example, but an example nonetheless to sort of get folks' attention. Will you explain what uh, the thalidomide tragedy of the 1950s is and just where you, where you see that uh, analogous connection?
1: Sure. Thalidomide was a, a drug that was developed in the late 50s. THC, as I said before, had 30 structures or 30 isomers. Thalidomide only has two. And in development of the drug and studying the drug, one of the isomers, I'll call it the right-handed structure, they found that it was very good at treating nausea. The left-handed structure was uh, mutagenic. It caused horrific birth defects. And so the researchers understood this like the conversion of CBD to THC, when they synthesized thalidomide, they make both a mixture of the right and the left. So a mixture of the good and the bad. And they knew enough to separate them. So they separated out the bad so that uh, they were only producing medicine that was pharmaceutically available to consumers. That was the right-handed good version. Because of how good it was for nausea, they marketed it uh, for morning sickness. So a lot of pregnant women were taking thalidomide to help with morning sickness. What the researchers didn't know back in the late 50s is that thalidomide, even the right-handed structure, when put in a biological environment, it would go back to its equilibrium concentration of the right and the left. It wasn't happy being pure. I try and use the example of carrying two two uh, 20-gallon buckets. You You put one in the right hand, one in the left hand, because it's easier than carrying them all in the right hand. So if you have a drug that's all in the right-handed or at least the thalidomide was not happy and went to its equilibrium concentration of left and right and because that happened in the body there were horrific birth defects and deaths and i use that as an example to show that even though the structures are almost identical they they have the same connectivity they're just arranged slightly different um, that can have serious implications my concern is that of these 28 unknown, unstudied isomers of THC. We don't know what they do in the human body. And that's, I I think it would be fascinating or exciting to have Delta 10 THC gummies. But before giving them to masses of population, I want some safety studies on Delta 10 THC. I want to see some data.
0: Boy, do we ever agree on that? Uh, and and to the extent there are delta eight products out there that can be uh, converted from CBD or or delta nine, as it were, um, that are proven safe. Um, and by the way, proven safe not necessarily uh, to whatever standard the FDA, I suppose, is moving for with CBD. I, I often, you know, state the um, the article that Martin Lee recently wrote, which is uh, desperately seeking harm, diagnosing the FDA CBD problem. So, uh, you know, The industry itself has moved forward with self grass with all manner of research. We have research all around the world that makes us feel confident um, in the safety in terms of not causing liver toxicity, which of course was the the big thing to look out for as initial research showed um, from cannabidiol. So when I say uh, proven that it is safe, I mean to a coalition of uh, industry leaders who are properly trained Um, I'd love to see that to the extent, again, that they don't cause intoxication. Delta-8 and every natural constituent of the cannabis plant, no matter whether it's whatever form of cannabis it's coming from, Congress intended to be liberated. Uh, I have worked the vast majority of my life to see it liberated and I want all of those natural plant constituents um, to be realized to their full potential and deliver on the full promise of that plant. We just need to do it in a way that is safe and we need to do it in a way that does not jeopardize these emerging industries on the fresh out of uh of prohibition. Just so important. Um, I didn't know if you saw recently, both Bloomberg and Rolling Stone uh, had articles about Delta 8, and I found the Rolling Stone article and those are both in January January 18th and 24th respectively uh, the Rolling Stone article interviewed an attorney um, and, and from the normal legal committee um, and I often have found you know normal I have uh, such a deep reverence for um, such the heroes you know and heroines for all of these all of these decades leading the fight uh, when it wasn't popular to do so um, and also I find that every now and again there is this divergence of interests even through that organization but this particular normal lawyer was you know basically saying in this Rolling Stone article is quoted as saying that the Department of Justice and the Drug Enforcement Administration are aware of this sort of Delta 8 scourge and and uh, they, I'm, I'm using that word the lawyer did not but uh, it, and it seemed to imply that there would be some imminent activity and uh, I have to say that I was just like, wow, you know, in what universe do those of us who have been activists so dedicated, particularly for, for decades, um, all of a sudden are looking to the Department of Justice and the Drug Enforcement Administration to come in and be the hero here? It's just so weird and counterintuitive and not at all where my, where my heart or my head is at. Um, but yet, to the extent it is true that there was some knowledge there of by that quoted attorney. Um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, the DEA or DOJ, one in the same essentially, has up its sleeve on how they think they are going to handle um, the Delta-8 situation. Any particular uh, cautionary tales or interesting things that you've seen in the lab or policies that you have in the lab that you might share with us around Delta-8?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I think about, I made a comment earlier about how uh, producers are making new products and new formats, and they're, they're uh, moving so fast that we don't have time to evaluate the safety and efficacy of these. And I'll use this as an example, a vape pen, and somebody thought it would be a great idea to add vitamin E acetate to it. Uh, you know, vitamin E is great. You know, it's, a, it's great as a vitamin. It's great on your skin. It probably just shouldn't be inhaled. Um, you know, and I think the the jury's still out on that one, whether it was actually the vitamin E acetate, but whatever happened with that, it could also be the the vape hardware. I've seen some conflicting studies, but we created products, not me, but the industry created products, which were not only unsafe, they were deadly. And I don't think anybody did it maliciously. I honestly don't believe there was any malintent there, but people moved too fast and they created a lot of product and put it on the market without thinking and they put deadly product and people died as a result of that. And so when I think of the Delta eight scenario, I think of, you know, the, a repeat of that whole scenario, how many times are we going to put stuff on the market without understanding it only to realize that the consumers who are trusting us, they're trusting us as producers, they're t- trusting us as industry representatives to ensure their safety. Um, and they're being put in harm's way because w- some people aren't doing a good job. There's, there's most of the people in the industry are doing a great job, but it only takes a few people who are not doing a good job that are gonna tarnish the, uh, the industry. If you think of the vitamin E acetate, you know, think about all of the uh, prohibition of vape cartridges in Massachusetts where I live Vape cartridges were prohibited by the governor. Um, that only made black market sales go through the roof. And black market sales were even more heavily contaminated. The ones that were regulated, produced, were tested, um, but uh, there was a bit of an overreaction on that, and I am I just fear that that same thing is going to happen with the delta eight phenomena. <laughs>
0: Indeed, time will tell, and it, and it may tell uh, fairly swiftly here. I also wanted to go back um, when we were talking about the definition of, of hemp. We talked about the definition of tetrahydrocannabinols, um, which was amended as a result of the 2018 Farm Bill. Um, and that's a show in itself, as you well know from the DEA interim final rule, um, because we're specifically talking about Delta IX um, in terms of uh, the DEA interim final Final rule saying, hey, we think we're going to go ahead and take jurisdiction, even though it's not really our jurisdiction for anything that's over 0.3% delta 9. And we'll see how that um, unfolds. The definition of hemp, however, and and you'd mentioned it before, the fact that, uh, you know, the words isomers and salts of isomers are included in that definition. And when I had first consulted you, um, and I believe I, I, we first started talking about this because I needed your consultation for uh, the public comments being submitted for the New York Cannabinoid Hemp Regulations. And again, thank you. Your time is so valuable, brother, and you gave of it generously. And, and thank you so much for that. Um, and in that conversation, you discussed that, that, those words. And I thought to myself, huh, now that he mentions it, I don't think those words were in the original definition. I think he's right. And of course, I looked. And even though the original definition of marijuana, which was taken part and parcel right down to the punctuation from the 1937 marijuana tax act adopted uh by the nixon administration in 1970 for the controlled substances act but it included of course all of these uh things um compounds all, all of these words but it did not include isomers and salts of isomers and so after that conversation i went on a deep dive who, what, how did those words get in there and why? And so I started looking at the Controlled Substances Act and the various bodies of law regarding it and regulation, I should say, um, the two, the statute uh, itself, and then the and the body of regulation from it. And I found that while the word isomers, salts of isomers, are not in the actual specific definitions, as it turns out, and you may very well know this, brother, Um the various categories of drugs within the different schedules have their own sort of sub definition for example if we look uh at schedule 1 um opiates there's a there's a little section there that says opiates unless specifically accepted or unless listed in another schedule any of the following opiates, including their isomers, esters, ethers, salts, and salts of isomers, esters, and ethers, whenever the existence of such isomers, esters, ethers, and salts is possible within the specific chemical designation. So, and then it ta- and then for each different classification it talks about the different types of isomers which i further found fascinating i've gotten you know quite a crash course here enough to make myself dangerous but at least try to help the industry you know think about these things and and move our way forward into responsible stewardship which of course is is the shared goal um So I realized, and the same thing for hallucinogenic substances under which marijuana and (laughs) tetrahydrocannabinols is defined. Side note, in that particular category, they include the most categories of isomers. So as usual, I mean, my mind is always trained to be like, why are they picking on forms of cannabis more than they're picking on anything else? But for cannabis, as it turns out, uh, they include every type of isomer. In fact, they say within that same section for hallucinogenic substances, that for purposes of this paragraph only, the term isomer includes optical position and geometric isomers. And we won't get too far in the weeds here because then I had to figure out what position isomers were. And apparently there's some guidance that the DEA has out on that. But the bottom line is that's you know, it was the architects of the Farm Bill which learned such an important lesson from the definition from 2014, which, of course, we all thought was going to do the trick. Any part of the plant is any part of the plant. But the DEA, of course, found a way to say any part of the plant surely does not mean any part of the plant. It doesn't mean this, that, and the other thing. So I think that the architects got their best law and policy analysts on it and said, how can we make sure 10 ways from Sunday that there is no iota not an atom of this plant that the DEA uh, can have jurisdiction over. And I think that's where they found those darn words, isomers and salts of isomers, by going through that deep dive and they threw it in and and they were very effective. But here we sit today with the freedom and liberation of all of those isomers um, and then figuring out how to responsibly steward our ability to, to use them or work with them.
1: Yeah, so when you, when you think about... Traditional pharmaceutical drug development pathways: when they develop a drug, they do studies, they do safety studies, and they market it, and it works great. But they're continually working on that that drug. They're they're adding different side chains or different molecules or or, or variations of that, trying to improve the efficacy, reduce the side effects, and so they're always modifying these. So um, I I don't think this will be uh, any different with with cannabis or with THC, we talked earlier about THC acetate. Um, There are chemical modifications that can be made to the THC molecule that could uh, have dramatic improvement in different properties, different uh, efficacy. You could have a THC that's reduced in psychoactivity. Look at the Delta eight is already um, somewhat in that uh, regard, but as researchers do this, it's being um, studied but also from a safety standpoint. Um, and I think that there is a real pathway for that, for, uh, creative studies of the cannabinoid molecules, uh, especially the minor cannabinoids, uh, the, if you look at CBC or some of the other minors that are, you know, found in hemp as well, um, there's significant promise for different therapeutics from that. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future.
0: Indeed, and therein lies the point of liberating the plant. And I think before too long we'll liberate the plant entirely, with probably some pretty heavy guardrails, and uh, for a while, indeed. Now, folks, of course, can go right to our site at PodConnects, P-O-D-C-N-X, uh, to access the outstanding presentation that you're using to bring awareness of public health, consumer safety, and just responsible stewardship again to this issue. Um, And and all of your your other links will be there as well uh, for Proverde Laboratories based in Massachusetts. But before we go, Chris, have I not asked you something or or is there anything that you want to make sure that the listeners know before um, we end this fantastic interview? And thank you again.
1: Nope, I think you've uh, done a good job at at, uh, highlighting some of the issues and and, uh, challenging me with questions. I, I think I'm good.
0: Excellent. Well, I cannot thank you enough, not just for your time and again, the the generous sharing of your knowledge and expertise, but for really being the first line of defense, for being a trusted, accredited lab. Uh, And again, not just uh, ISO accreditations, but being accredited to perform testing, specific types of testing on specific types of products. All of that goes into account when you send your samples to a lab. Bear in mind, folks, that most states and certainly the federal government and all responsible uh, agencies usually have a term defined called accredited labs. So uh, we're seeing a lot of moving um, lab samples over to labs that don't have any accreditation to either perform heavy metals testing, or maybe they have accreditation to perform heavy metals testing, but not necessarily on a Parmesan crisp. Uh, So all of those things need to come into account. Um, And thank you for being uh, that lab uh, among very few who have so many accreditations and so much expertise. Chris, thank you for being with us. We can't wait to have you on again and stay healthy.
1: Joy, it's always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you.